1: The latest episode of Offline with Johnny Fav's John Favreau features an intimate interview with international soccer superstar Megan Rapino. Megan shares her personal experience managing the added pressures that elite athletes live with in today's extremely online world and why online trolls don't stop her from using social media to push for progressive change. New episodes of Offline drop every Sunday in the Pod Save America feed. Check it out. Wherever you get your podcasts,
2: All right, so Jason, our team, yes. well, our team's the uh, next <laughs> <laughs> The Knicks and the Hawks are on some shaky ground, my friend. Um, The Knicks dropped two straight, although they have a home game against the Pacers Monday night, so they can bounce back there. Um, uh, Hawks were off to a rough start. We were on the West Coast, and it was tough over there on the West Coast. But we did get a win on Sunday against the defending champs, the Bucks. Big win. They were missing some players. It was a struggle for everyone. But Trey dropped the 42-piece nugget and snapped our six-game losing streak so I'm feeling good because we we have eight of our next 11 games at home. So I'm hoping that we can start trying to find some chemistry, go streaking, win some games in a row, get some of those things doing. So I'm feeling good about the win. I still have some concerns, but what are you feeling on your end?
1: It's a little shaky right now. I, you know, the big <laughs> thing is that the, the starting lineup, the starters are not getting it done for whatever reason. the uh, The bench unit is coming in and they are just, wrecking house, playing at a quick pace. Uh, it's, I'll say this. One of the kind of themes of last season for the Knicks, as they had, you know, really a top five defense for most of the season, was that, and you heard a lot of, uh, you know, like advanced stat kind of people mention this, was that some of that might have been fool's gold because while the Knicks were very active on defense, and of course Tom Thibodeau is known for his defensive prowess as a coach, Nick's opponents were missing a lot of open threes. They were giving up. The, the defense was designed to kind of cut off lanes, swing, 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 and then that that three-pointer in the corner or somewhere on that wing, was always going to be open. and And teams just missed. Yeah. Now, they're not missing this year, and you add to that the fact that after your Hawks, uh, Molly whopped us in the playoffs, it was obvious that we needed offense, right? Like yeah. and so the trade-off was, well, you know, if we can take a half a step back on defense, but take two steps forward on offense, right? With with Kemba Walker and Evan Fournier and and hopefully, you know, the continued development of RJ and and quickly and Toppin, then it's worth it. Now, I think part of the problem is that we were actually a lot worse Defensively, than we kind of thought we were last season, but we just got lucky. And so now the step back isn't a half a step back, it's, it's like, like a step and a half back. Yeah. Uh, and while offensively we are much better, we're top 10 offense right now, defensively we're like 24th, 25th in the league. Uh, and, you know, a lot of new guys. So, the, you know, figuring out the rotations and who plays. And I think, Kemba Walker has clearly, I think, his is limited by whether it's the knee injury or what. I think he's clearly on the downside of stuff. Even if this is all we get from Kemba, who's averaging 12.5 right now, 42% uh, from the field, two and a half rebounds, three assists. Even if that's all, it was worth the gamble on him. But, you know, we just hopefully it gels. And we figure out some scheme stuff to cut, like not give up yeah. open threes and and get punished by Ricky Rubio. But that's that's uh, what it is, you know. Like I was
2: waiting on you to throw in uh, Ricky Rubio, but you know he what? killed us. But you know what? There's both of us are kind of in the same boat in a sense of last year we were flying low under yes. the radar. Nobody was checking for us. People would rest their favorite players against us. Your best player, that's who you would probably rest against one of our teams. Just because you want to save your great games, you think you can probably beat the Hawks or the Knicks without your full ensemble. So now this year, you know, both teams, the Hawks and the Knicks, have some success. (laughs) And we rock up to the next season thinking it's the same old song, and it's not. Teams are ready for us now. You know, you said teams are making more threes. Yeah, teams are actually probably, you know, everybody's going to prepare every team because this is the the pros and there's all kinds of staff. But no matter what, you know the games that you can probably win and the games that you're going to have to give your A game to win. And we just weren't that A game team, neither one of us. And so now we're both trying to figure it out. Well, what does it feel like to be the hunted? We 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 were used to used to the hunting and now people are are coming after us and even us. I mean, honestly, we're 1 and 8 on the road, 4 Yikes. and 1 at home and we've always been a great home team, but the 1 and 8, that's that's the tough part. But you talked about it. Yes, we have that core back, but every season, even if you have the exact same players, you come back with the same team another season it'll feel different. The chemistry will be different. The vibes will be different. I don't know if fans know this, but each year a team is different. You know, like you go home in the off season and you could have somebody's homeboy telling him he should be taking more shots. And then you got another person and their family's telling them, (laughs) you see how good y'all were when you you do this? You got to do more of that. So everybody comes in, it could be the exact same player and everybody comes in with a different mentality. And so, yes, we have new players as well as our old players and we have to figure it out every year. And I think that people thought that it was going to be like a pause button the Hawks and the Knicks were just going to press play again when the season came back and we were going to start just where we left that's just not how sports works like emotions energy egos chemistry those are all things that have to be developed every single year and maintained and so we're kind of just seeing that effect
1: I I think the good news for both of us like when I look at, at, at your squad I think that there's a bounty of riches. You got a, a lot of your players are healthy, which was not the case last season, right? So these def, those decisions were kind of made for Nate McMillan about who would play. Yep. This season it's like Danilo Gallinari is hardly playing and he was a big part of what was happening last season. And that it you know obviously you got to with new contracts. Yeah, we have a and healthy Cam Reddish. People, that's you right. Know? You've got to you've got to move past Danilo Gallinari. But there's just going to be it's not so easy to just do that. Guys have to figure it out. Guys have to play together. They have to figure out those roles. So I think a lot of it is just like reps getting out there and, yeah. and building a chemistry, especially for y'all's
2: team. And you spoke of a you on DeAndre Hunter out eight weeks now for a wrist yep. injury, so there's minutes now available that'll work themselves out, to your point. Yeah, I what
1: I don't know what to do about is the Knicks bench. The Knicks bench is so much better than the starters right now. You know, like... Uh, I I think the game that really showed the difference was uh, we lost to Milwaukee 112-100, but we were down about 23 points second half of that game, and it was the bench that brought the team all the way back, Uh, and then Tibbs gave them the opportunity to win or lose it, and they did eventually end up losing, but it's like that's one of those things where I don't know what to do because... The guys who are starting right now kind of have to figure it out. Like, there's no option. Maybe, Kemba, maybe you switch Kemba for Rose at the same
2: time. That's the whole debate, though. I mean, I know the bench as a whole is outplaying the starters, to your point, like what you're saying. But really, people want to know what's going on with Derrick Rose and Kemba Walker. Because if you swap those two, I I mean, Derrick Rose is like, He's a fan favorite wherever yeah. he goes. He's the fan favorite, so and he's solid, you know. And to his to his credit, he plays well. I mean, he played great in Minnesota for a team that was yeah. struggling at that time. Now he's with the Knicks. He's playing, what like he he just produces wherever he is.
1: Yeah, I think you know it's one of those things where if you're a fan, you think, oh, well just you know, just move, you know, give the give the bench guys more minutes they're playing against bench players so that's part of the successes they're playing against second second units Definitely. and th- that increased energy that youthful energy that they have uh, is paying dividends there and i think in a perfect world you want derek rose against those bench units because here you have a former mvp who maybe doesn't have like all the athleticism that he once did but is still absolutely devastating against bench units that's a great spot for him because you could just let him go. That's yeah. your squad. Like you, you are the focal point of that, of that unit and you just go. And that's the perfect way to, I think to play Derek Rose at this point of his career, rather than have him try and run an offense with Julius Randall, with Fournier, with Mitchell Robinson, all these other
2: guys, but it's tough. But and to that point people have to forget just once you start moving pieces on the puzzle it doesn't mean that if you say hey let's move Derrick Rose from 6th man of the year to starting point guard you, that doesn't that doesn't mean that his productivity is going to be the exact same. Now he might be getting less shots. He might be playing against people that he doesn't get his same flow. So just, you know, this is in the weeds of sports, but sometimes fans think it's as simple as, hey, this guy's scoring 12, this guy's scoring 15. Let's substitute the bench for the starters. And then right. perfect. It doesn't work that way. And I also have to say, shouts to Kimba Walker. He's a Husky. And, you know, we bleed blue. <laughs> we bleed blue over here. So I hope okay. that Kimba does get healthy. I saw, you know, every time I watched one of his interviews, he like accountability is what he does on the next level. Yeah. And so he was like, you know what? I'm going to be more aggressive, I blah, blah, blah. It's on me. So I just like the character of Kimba Walker and I'm rooting for him to kind of get back to where I'm sure he wants to be playing because players know what level you're playing. Like as a player, no one needs to tell Kimball Walker he's necessarily not playing to where they would want him to. Kimball Walker is probably telling Kimba Walker that every day. So shouts to Kimba. I hope you get back to where you want to be.
1: And you know what, like, if you really look at it, the bad of our last few losses, the bad one was Cleveland, who maybe are a lot better than than we thought coming into the season because Mobley is insane and Jared Allen is very good. Um, but it's our last two losses, Charlotte, who is very good and just beat the Warriors, yep. uh, and Milwaukee are the former champs. So, you know, maybe this is, uh, you know, maybe this is about our level. Um, and this is a little bit of a come-to-earth moment after the really incredible bing-bong start to start the season. This is
2: our sophomore slump. This is our sophomore slump. It's all right.
1: When will you officially worry, Renee?
2: Yeah, you know, I actually said this on air Uh, A week ago, I said, hey, everybody, let's not hit the panic button. We're on the West Coast. It's going to be hard to figure out things on the road. I think the moment you start to feel a little bit of concern, maybe not hit the panic yet, because if people remember, the Hawks went on a crazy run towards the end of the year. That uh, post-All-Star break is when we really turned it around. So I would say All-Star break is where, like, you better start figuring it out or you better start making changes to figure it out because – Usually teams kind of like what the Hawks did and uh the Knicks post all-star break, we took off. I mean, we were winning yeah. like an alarming rate of games. It's just really high. <laughs> we had a lot we had a lot of games at home, so that helped. So I guess for me, too, it depends on your schedule because if you have a lot of games in the first half of your season and you got to win a lot of games on the road, good luck in the second half when teams are fighting for playoff spots. But for just the Hawks, I would say we have eight of our next 11 games at home. If we finish out this 11-game stretch and we haven't won a majority of those games, I would say it's time to start getting some conversations going about either switching the lineup up or where mm. do we need to have more shots funneling to Does John Collins need to get I would you need to start restrategizing if after this 11 games we're not where we need to be. What do you think for you for your Knicks? Uh,
1: I, I I about 10 more games, let's call it about 20, 25 games and then we'll see. I'll say, you know, similar to my argument for the Knicks, I'll say for you guys and this just shows you that there is no mercy in the NBA at all. <laughs> There's no mercy. Here is you so, uh, said you guys went on a about a six, a six game uh, losing streak, but here's the teams that beat you: Brooklyn, okay, right? The KD, probably the best player in the NBA right now. Utah, I think the either the number one or number two <laughs> offense, and obviously like defensively, Crazy. they know they know what they've been doing for a while. Phoenix, they were in the finals last season. <laughs> Golden State at Come that on. time. At that time, I called the that Golden TV State
2: game. I called the 50-piece nugget by Steph. I said he had just gotten that fresh fade. You could tell he was straight from the barbershop. I said it on air because I like to be transparent. I said, hey, guys, I don't know if I should be worried about the babyface assassin, but they say you look good, you feel good, you play good. He got a fresh cut, a fresh fade, the face, all of it. I was concerned. I went on record before the game, and then he dropped the 50-piece nugget on us.
1: You again. Utah again. Right? And then Denver. So that is, on, that is an, insa- that's an insane stretch. Like, Come on, man. That's a brutal stretch of, of teams. And there's just no mercy out here. There's no mercy. <laughs> speaking of the Warriors, uh, and speaking of Steph Curry with a fresh fade, uh, uh, <laughs> the most dangerous man, arguably, in the NBA right now, Woo. we got to talk about, okay, so the Warriors played the Bulls uh, recently and beat them. Uh, Bulls, one of the hottest teams in the NBA. And Steph Curry took a shot, (laughs) took a three at one point during the game. And before it went in, it's on the downswing, but still, it's like the entire— everybody else on the floor is waiting for the rebound, except for Steph, who knows that it's good. He has already turned around and is, like, pointing at the crowd. And the the photo of this—just look it up, folks. Google it. It's one of the greatest sports photos, I think, in recent memories— for what is it, sure. it? If somebody did that to you, I mean, what can you do?
2: Absolutely nothing. First of all, like the stuff that Steph Curry does, and this is coming from like, I considered myself a shooter. Like, yeah. un, like I had to say considered because what Steph does, if that's shooting, then we need to get another category for what us mere mortals do. And then <laughs> or know. and then what is it called that what Steph does? Because we shoot like I shot threes. And I made threes, too. But what Steph does to where he can predict the future and where he can predict what shots. And I'm not even talking about the makes. I don't know. People watch Steph play more. He knows where his misses are going, too. He knows where other people's misses are going. That's how he's sneaky with the rebounding that he does and different things. What he does is not just shooting there's like some magic in there. Majuding is what I'll call it. When he's, when he's majuting like that, because we've seen him do it before, people just haven't necessarily got the photos to prove it, but we've seen him shoot, turn around and laugh at the bench and like, yeah, yep. that's going in. I've also, I've only seen him miss one. I will say that. And I was like, when he missed the one, I knew he was probably going to do like five more and make him crazy. And here we are. But he missed one actually two games ago before this museum style photo that you're talking about. <laughs> he missed one and I knew he was in for something special, but I don't know. When Steph is maturing. I don't know how you can get higher than that. Yeah, some people it's... said, like some people said, like the shooting has evolved. We thought Reggie Miller was great. And then here comes Ray Allen and then here comes Steph Curry. And what's the next after Steph Curry? I'm like, I don't know. I I don't don't know know what you could do, but some people said, you know, maybe a fadeaway threes, you know, bigger (sighs) stuff, but I don't know if it gets better than what we're seeing. I'm sure it does, but I don't know.
1: Yeah, you're legitimately up against the boundary of the court at this point. That's the thing, like the physical limitations of the basketball court. I mean, we just never have, have never seen anything like this because, you know, usually if you can, if you're a great shooter you're a great shooter, one way, right? Like standstill shooter. Yeah. Catch and shoot, right? Yeah. Steph Curry could off the dribble. I'm scared. Off the handoff, catch and shoot, whatever it is, like you from know, half like, court. Yeah, it's like he could do all of that, and it's it's so it's it's honestly mind boggling. Again, to so look at that photo and be like. Everybody else is playing regular basketball where yeah, they're just they're shooting. waiting. They're waiting to see if, they, hey, like, is this going to go in or is this a rebound? We're waiting to see to find out. Steph Curry is not. He is legit. He's like, that's good. I'm not even looking at it.
2: He's already thinking about defense. He's like, all right, what celebration? That's why he has the best celebrations known to man. As soon as he lets it go, he knows if it's going in or not. So he starts playing and he's like, oh, yeah, I might hit him with a little shimmy today. Or He just gets to decide he has time for days. It's crazy.
1: It's really unbelievable. This is going to be the best conditioned, hardest working, most professional, unselfish, toughest, nastiest, most disliked segment in Take Light history. Because we're talking about brute force, we're talking about the bludgeoning 1990s New York Knicks with the author of Blood in the Garden, A Flagrant History of the 1990s New York Knicks, Sports Illustrated's Chris Herring joins us now. Chris, welcome to Takeline.
4: Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. I appreciate that. I hope yes, you're not all you. that nasty and talk on me as the author. I'm just I'm just the messenger. For that
1: that the was whole so I was paraphrasing Pat Riley there, who of course uh, set the tone for this era of Knicks history. For people who are not versed in the 90s Knicks, talk to us about that team, uh, their place in the league at that time, and uh, their impact on the NBA.
4: They were not much when Riley got there. I mean, to the extent that Riley actually kind of threatened not to come on board because of it, uh, because Patrick Ewing wanted out. They'd been so much of a mess. Golden State, Uh, baby. Yeah, like. (laughs) Five or six coaches in five years and, um, you know, four, three or four general managers in that time. Patrick Ewing was supposed to be a savior. Instead, he was, you know, taking his licks just like everybody else. Um, and and Riley obviously understood the market, but wasn't trying to walk into a situation where he wasn't going to have a franchise player. You know, he obviously had all sorts of accolades as, as the coach from the Lakers. And, you know, was coming over from a big NBC job, a comfortable NBC job. So he wanted to be coming in on good footing. And it was kind of a mess. And I think Riley saw something. I think there were some people that expected him to kind of try to take the Knicks and do the Showtime thing. The Knicks did not really have a Showtime roster at all. And uh, (laughs) I think Riley very wisely saw them as more of a team that could kind of carry out a lot of the same things that the Pistons did before they aged out. And I, I think he saw the Pistons as having a successful game plan to try to beat the team that was going to be the dominant force in the East and the bulls. He just figured the Pistons aged out. The Knicks were younger and the Knicks had a a roster that was capable of carrying out that sort of plan. So that's kind of what they were is like the new age Pistons with less offense. And um, they got really close to winning a championship that way. And it's interesting. You talked to enough people throughout that time and around the league they'll tell you that they think that that's the best coaching job he did because there there was talent. I think people sell them a little bit short as far as saying they had no talent. I don't think they had no talent, but they didn't have the Bulls level of talent. And, um, you know, they they did get very, very close to beating them when Jordan was there. Uh, They did beat them when Jordan was not. um, And they got really, really close to winning a title uh, in that year where Jordan wasn't there. And actually the first two times that Michael retired – they made it to the finals immediately after that. And I think that speaks volumes about the fact that they would have been the team right behind the Bulls had the Bulls not been the Bulls.
2: Yeah, you know, it's interesting because we talk about game planning for sports and you definitely had to have a game plan. You interviewed over 200 people. First of all, that's like ridiculous. That's a lot of interviews, Chris but secondly it's like what how did you plan for who you were going to talk to like who did you talk to and out of those interviews what was the most interesting crazy thing you heard like someone told you Uh,
4: well I you know I was four when they hired Pat Riley so I figured I needed to interview everybody uh, just because you know I, I almost turned down the opportunity to do the book because I figured I wasn't old enough I you know I didn't know enough about the teams and the beautiful thing about that is that the, the people that were reaching out to me trying to get me to do it were like, that's great. We we like that you don't know much about it because we know enough about your work history that you'll want to dig into it and try to find the answers for yourself instead of just assuming that you know them already. So right. um, I talked to, you know, it's funny for this sort of project, obviously you want to get all the big names, but I focused on a lot of the small ones that people have never heard of. I got a lot of advice from people that had done this before where they've talked to hundreds of people and you go through and you try to find the folks that nobody's talked to. Everybody's mm. heard Pat Riley. They've heard Patrick Ewing. They've heard John Starks. These are guys that are still in the media now. So you talk to the, the secretaries and the marketing people and the family members and the friends of Anthony Mason's and the people that got cut three days into training camp. <laughs> in my mind, it seems backwards, but the thing is when you talk to enough of those people, they remember some of that stuff so vividly,
2: yeah, because it was um, because a big if, deal to them.
4: Because yeah. their interaction with Patrick Ewing was a massive deal. Because they only had one of them, and you yeah. know, Patrick Ewing had so many encounters with so many people that uh, it all gets lost. They all get asked the same questions, and so you build up kind of this portfolio of all these questions you get to ask those major figures once you get to it. So I spent a lot of time talking to those folks. I obviously worked my way up the chain as well. Uh, there were some people that I didn't get to talk to. Um, Riley is one that rarely, rarely speaks mm. for projects like these. Um, but for the most part, I got just about everybody uh, at one time or another, at least got to meet everybody. And, you know, in, in some cases where I couldn't have, obviously, Anthony Mason's one of the big ones that passed away a few years ago. And I felt it was such a big deal to try to get to everybody in his orbit, not the teammates so much. I, I did talk to all of them, but um. The family members, the friends, the barber, the the women in some <laughs> cases, the the people that he feuded with, the people that traded for him, the people that despised him, the people that loved him, and um uh, the people that prayed for him, you know, just, just people that had a lot to do with him and that he really cared about. Um, because I've I've said this in tweets and stuff like that, but I feel like he was the person I wanted to be most careful with because there's already so much notorious stuff out there about him. He's not here to defend himself. Um, I take that very seriously, but I I also wanted to try to give a really layered portrait of what he was like, and I I think I did that. That was actually the second chapter of the book that I wrote. It's not the second chapter in the book, but in terms of when I wrote it, I wrote it really early because Mm. I wanted to make sure that the tone of it was right before I did anything else.
1: You often hear uh, the league is better when the Knicks are good. So this is a period of time when the Knicks work good. They were an elite team, always in the mix. And at the same time, I think it's fair to say, and I say this as a fan, an ardent fan that grew up on that team, you could make an argument that they almost ruined the NBA with the way <laughs> they played. Uh, and certainly, I, I think that the the rule changes that came in in the early part of the 2000s were in large part an answer to the kind of style that the Knicks promulgated and Pat Riley put in place what was the view of the team and the way they played around the league and and in the league office? You know, obviously they're like, oh, this is great. You know, like NBA and NBC is popping off, Bob Costas is going crazy. But were there concerns about the style of play?
4: Oh, my God. I mean, the rules, and it's so funny because some of them didn't even go through, but some of the rules changes that the league wanted to make, the league at one point, had something on the table where they were going to start suspending coaches if their players had a certain number of flagrant fouls collectively. I don't think it almost went through, because I think even Phil Jackson said that's going a step too far. And Phil obviously kind of despised the Knicks during this year. So, um, I mean, it was at that (laughs) level where they were so worried about the flagrant foul numbers that they were talking about suspending coaches for it. Um, And that was where, I mean, as you talk about the league and, and the direction they went, like the flagrant foul point totals and the suspensions after you get past a certain number of them that happened essentially because of the Knicks that happened the year after Charles Oakley had more than twice as many flagrants as everybody else. Um, where he had more flagrant fouls. I mean, they
1: were killing people. They were killing people.
4: He had more flagrant fouls than 15 teams did that year. So it was, (laughs) I mean, it was, was, I mean, they were the reason that a lot of this stuff happened. And Doc went as far as to call them. When I talked to him, he he talked about them as being like anti-Nick rules, Um, which is interesting, you know, from my perspective. I was like, that seems a little over the top. And then I talked to people from the league and they're like, we wouldn't call them that, but. You know, we wouldn't necessarily disagree with the idea that they probably were the face of the physicality after the Pistons, you know, once you rolled into the 90s. And, you know, if the Knicks feel like they were kind of the poster child of that and that it was taken out on them, we weren't looking to take it out on them. But I would understand them thinking that it impacted them more than everybody else because they were the team that everybody thought of that played that style and other teams kind of copied. So in some ways it probably did feel like that to them. So I don't think it was wrong of of Doc to say they were anti-nick rules. Maybe not not specifically, but very generally it kind of was. And it did, you know, eventually kind of change the way they played. Now they were still really physical and they still got in plenty of fights. Um, They didn't really learn their lesson from the fights they got in earlier in the decade against the Suns (laughs) and the Bulls. And it really came back to bite them in the ass against the Heat. Um, and you know, and the Suns actually came back to bite them in the ass as well, uh, years later with the Steve Nash and Mari Steinmeier teams. But, um, yeah, I mean, they, they were, that's actually what I think is the interesting part of the book. I get that the, the Knicks were certainly not everybody's cup of tea. Um, I've been asked a lot of questions already about like, why would you write about a team that didn't win a championship? And I guess there's two reasons. One. the teams that do win championships often are written about and they have documentaries made about them and they have documentaries made about their stars. And Scottie Pippen has his own book coming out, you know, (laughs) has his own book come out earlier this week. I haven't
1: heard about that. Does he have a book? Yeah. I feel
4: like I haven't (laughs) heard much news about that. So there's so much done on those teams already. So number one, it's interesting to just look at something that was adjacent, but maybe not the, the focal point. The Knicks were never the focal point, but two, the Knicks probably had as much impact on, The history of that era is any other team outside of the Bulls, really. Um, I guess you could argue the Rockets, but the Knicks had more to do with the rules changing than anybody. And I, you know, I think we would have eventually gotten to the place that we're at now rules wise with the wide open NBA. But I don't know that it would have happened as quickly as as it did Mm -hmm. uh, because of those teams. So if not for those teams, so, you know, I think that part of it is interesting. Um, love them or hate them. They, they certainly were in the picture all the time. I, don't, I, I keep comparing them to Forrest Gump. They weren't the focal point of the picture, but they yeah. were like off to the side, or they were like shaking the president's hand <laughs> when they needed to use the bathroom because they drank 12 beers with Reggie Miller <laughs> or with Michael Jordan or with the OJ Chase or what have you. All that stuff involved the Knicks in some way. And uh, they were in the photo. They just weren't the focal point of it.
2: Well, it's interesting because we're talking about how all those instances, those flagrant fouls, accelerated the game. But I'm curious if you would know how do the big names from those players in the '90s feel about the state of play right now with the current Knicks, the Ewings, the Oakley, Starks. Like, what do you think they view the current state of the New York Knicks as? Like, what what are your thoughts on that?
4: Yeah, uh, well, I, I could tell you how Oakley feels about him. Uh, <laughs> Might have the strongest feelings of anybody. Um, yeah, and I, I think it explains kind of why he's been on the outs with the team for so long. He does not, he does not really see much similarity between those teams and the ones of the last few years. Uh, but, I mean, I also think that is one of the things. I don't get into it a whole, whole lot, but I do dip my toe in it. That was the period of time when Jim Dolan took over the team right at the end right. of the period I was writing about. So that's one of the major, major differences is that they are owned by essentially a single person now uh, as far as the person that gets to make the decisions. So that's a major difference. The Knicks were corporately owned several times during the nineties. And so kind of played a role in why they couldn't easily just give Pat Riley an ownership stake in the team. And so that's one of the the key differences, you know, John Stark still works for the team. And so, um, you know, and he's always kind of been a happy go lucky sort of character. And so I think he probably is happy with the way the Knicks look now and You know, while I don't know that you would get him to admit it, you know, candidly, I'm sure he probably felt like stuff was maybe a little bit of a mess during the last, you know, 10, 15 years as well. But again, works for the team. And Patrick Ewing's an interesting case, too. I don't think he's ever really said a, a, a really negative word. The closest that he came was a few months ago when his team was on the cusp of winning. There, I guess at the very beginning of the Big East tournament that they played at yeah. uh, the mm-hmm. Garden. And he was really frustrated when he was asked and kind of badgered to show his ID, um, to show that he was credentialed to be there as if he was like a random stranger at the Garden. And he seemed pretty frustrated about that. So it is mess. interesting to yeah. see these I know. undercurrents of those sorts of things that like still exist and just kind of a weird sort of place for those sorts of reasons. But no, I mean, I, I think that the, the memories of the 90s are fond. Uh, I think the interesting thing is that when you talk to most of these guys from those teams, though, they all more or less feel that the league needed to move forward. Like, I think Oakley might be the one holdout that stuff should go back to exactly the way it was back then. But I think as far as just the the physicality, there was a a real chance that somebody was going to get hurt. And, um, you know, most people like that the game has opened up some. And I think with Ewing and some of those guys, you talk to them they talk about how they would have thrived even more in a league like this where they weren't being banged constantly. They had shooting ability. John Starks led the league in three-point makes one year. So, I mean, like, he would have been in fine uh, as an undersized guy where you couldn't hit him and touch him as much. Um, And Ewing, I mean, Ewing would have extended his range two or three feet, and been. he was arguably one of the best seven-foot jump shooters then, and I imagine he'd be even more so now.
1: Um. what is the craziest story that, that that was told to you or that you uncovered through this process?
0: Oh,
4: they'd kill me. Uh, they'd kill me. They're oh, going to kill the good me. Start,
1: good start. Already. They're going to.
4: Well, they're going to they're going to kill me anyway, because I think I'm I'm supposed to be in a, in a spot where they're like, well, you can do interviews that touch on the book a little bit, but are about the NBA as a whole, yeah. but don't do any that are strictly about the book. So I'll hold back some of it, but I've, i told this one, and I do think it's funny enough that hopefully you haven't heard it. Um, I was going to keep it out of the book entirely. Um, I ended up putting it towards the very end. It was the story about Anthony Mason. He had been with the team for a total of one year. Um, and he, he, if you've ever seen those, those camps that they have, those youth camps that they have, Yeah. yeah. uh, where you 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 never get the star player for those camps. It's generally a guy that's like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and the kids, it makes no difference to them. Patrick right. Ewing, right? Starks is their favorite, but like they'll readily take a Hubert Davis that's three feet taller than they are, and you know yeah. they've seen him play before, so they're excited. So Mason was like a good by 1992. He was a really good example of that because he'd only been with the Knicks for one year. He was a guy that came off the bench. He's a guy that if you give him a little bit of cash for showing up he's thrilled with it because he doesn't make that much money relative to the other guys. So he was the guy that agreed to do it. They said, we're going to give you $1,500. You show up for the one day. Uh, You know, that was probably a decent percentage of his salary at the time. So he, he shows up um, and it's the first annual youth camp that they have for, you know, for players, uh, young players to come by and they're hosting the camp for like a weekend or two, three days. Mason comes by. He, Pulls up as the kids are walking into camp for the day in a limousine. The kids go nuts when they see Mason <laughs> in the car, rolls down the window, and he just sits there. He's not getting out of the limo. Five minutes pass, <laughs> 10 oh my minutes pass, 15 minutes pass. And finally, the administrative director at Tapscott, who later would become their GM, he comes out and he says, mason what are you doing? Like, kids are inside waiting for you. We're waiting for you. Why are you sitting here in this limo? And He's like, not getting out of the limo. And Ed Tapscott asked him why, because they've obviously agreed on this. He said, uh, I I need you to make it two grand even and I need it today in cash.
1: What? And so
4: Ed Tapscott's like, I, you know, I've already gotten these kids in here. They know you're they've seen you at this point. I need you to come in. Uh, all the leverage.
2: He has all the leverage, leverage all at this of point. It.
4: And this is like, I don't even know if you could get two grand out of an ATM today in cash. You have to make several trips. You're probably going to get the, you know, you need an override and all sorts of other stuff. So Ed Tapscott sends out like multiple staffers to go out with his ATM cards to go get cash from different places. Um, So he's like, I don't, what choice do I have? You know, so he he does get Mace (laughs) to come out. He does go inside with the kids. He plays with the kids for a little bit. He plays a scrimmage with a group of them. And he ended up elbowing a kid in the nose and breaking his nose um, by accident, incidental, um, but (laughs) breaks his nose. The kid is knocked out cold. His nose is gushing blood. Oh, my
2: God. I know you lying, Chris.
4: The kid kid wakes up. The Knicks are, you know, scared, crapless that they're going to have to pay a lot of money in a lawsuit. But the kid wakes up smiling and asks Mason if he can sign his bloody T-shirt. Mason obliges um, the camp ends without a lawsuit. And then as Mason's walking out, he walks over to Ed Tapscott, the man who got him to come to the camp in the first place. He said, Oh, well, thanks for the cash. But by the way, the reason I wanted the cash, I'm going to go home and have the limo take me home. And I'm going to give that cash to my mom. She's going shopping today and walked out. And so the whole idea what? was that he was going to keep the limo for several extra hours so that his mom could have like a joy ride. And a shopping trip,
2: and two thousand cash to get on it, and then like y'all it. probably still going to hit the direct deposit for fifteen hundred because it's already yeah. processed. Right. So he really made thirty five hundred in a limo <laughs> for a day. What? And
4: then got and they say he was
1: not, and they say he was not a finesse player.
4: Ah. Well, he, he might not have been a finesse player, but he was a finesse. <laughs> that's the
2: whole system. Yeah. yeah. So
4: I mean, that was Mason, and then got upset with that Tapscott got when it got back to the actual general manager of the team that like he was trying to figure out why there was so much money allotted to the limo for that day or why the charge was so high and it was like well Mace kept the limo for four extra hours but uh Mace got mad at Ed Tapscott for ratting him out he's like I- how how am I ratting you out when you just straight up hijacked the limo and Mace, hit me up no, yeah. sir. he was a he was an interesting dude uh and a sensitive dude and I I, I really think I hope that comes across. That story wasn't going to make the book at all until my editor like forced me to put it in. It had no tie to any one specific thing other than just saying how wild dude was. uh, And I couldn't figure out a way to like fit it into the story. So I put it in the epilogue at the very end. But, you know, I had so much fun writing about him, but he was complicated. And I strained and strained and strained trying to figure out how to just tell his story fully without, without it just being this, cartoon you know I didn't want that and a lot of his teammates from college you know many of whom a couple of whom moved out of the room with him because they're like I can't live with this dude anymore a lot of them (laughs) were telling me they had never spoken to reporters before because they did not want to just put him out there as just this crazy looney tune and they wanted a sense that like had I called and asked to write a story about him I don't know that they would have said yes but something about it being a book and them knowing that I would have the space to fully get into his story mm. seemed to kind of win a lot of them over. And now, you know, they they text me for updates all the time. Like, when's the book coming out? Um, who else did you talk to? What other stories did you get? So I'm excited, you know, and I'm I'm hopeful that um that when his folks read it, that they feel like I I handled it with care and that I wasn't just looking to tell just the craziest stories about him because he was a really interesting dude that, that had a lot to him.
2: Well, he's an author and senior writer for Sports Illustrated. His new book, Blood in the Garden, will be available in bookstores nationwide January 18th. Pre-order yes. it right now to get more amazing stories like the one you just heard, which is only one of many stories. Chris <laughs> Harry, thank you for joining us on Take Line.
4: Thank you guys so much for having me. I really appreciate you guys and love what you do.
3: Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader.
1: Last week, ESPN football insider Adam Schefter tweeted the following, quote, Minnesota Vikings RB Dalvin Cook is the victim of domestic abuse and extortion. There's a pending litigation, according to his agent, Zach Hiller. And that tweet got about 30,000 likes and framed a narrative about an ongoing situation that had not yet broken into the news yet about the Minnesota running back. But Schefter did not mention that Graceland Trimble, Cook's former girlfriend, is suing Cook for battery and assault. Many in the media pointed out that Schefter in promoting a narrative from Cook's agent, essentially sight unseen, shows not only a bias, but, you know, the kind of problematic nature of this kind of sports journalism and the way it hinges on relationships between agents and executives and these extremely popular and powerful media insiders like Adrian Wojnarowski, uh, Shams Tarania and Adam Schefter. So I think the question is how much control of a story do insiders have and how much of a problem is this? And how do we stop certain agendas from being met? How do we stop this kind of pre-framing of, you know, an actual legal case from taking place again?
2: You know, I don't know if you do stop it. I I, I agree. You know, like you can't put the toothpaste back in the tube. You just can't do that. Yeah. <laughs> we have a a thing here called social media and that's yep. what i think blurs the lines of journalism i mean this is this is a small part of what journalism is turning into journalism is not necessarily the news anymore fact based journalism has turned into well this is what i think is going on and it's not necessarily here's the cold hard facts you decide We're being told how to think a lot of times in journalism, whether it's even newspaper articles now, all the way to tweets where that's where I look. I say it all the time. My newspaper is Twitter and I check it in the morning. I always check it at night. And if I have time during the daytime, I dabble in because I want to see what's going on on the second, on the moment. But the problem with that is these journalists want to put out stories in the second, in the moment of when something happens to be the first to do it but maybe not getting all of the information that they need to. They just want to be the first, and they'll apologize later and figure it out later if there's not. But it's almost this who can put something out first and how wild can you make the caption and make people click it is what's kind of shifting a lot of things in journalism, I think. What are are your thoughts on it? I think that this is
1: a problem that is specific to sports journalism. I think that there's like other, maybe other spaces, like video games, journalism, different kinds of criticism, I think maybe falls into this area. But I think sports is uh, very vulnerable to this kind of thing because the main places where people get their sports news, like ESPN, for instance, where Schefter's employer, they have an ongoing economic relationship with the NFL that highly incentivizes them to I don't want to say go easy, but maybe not go as hard on the NFL yeah. when they need to because you know they have a contract with the NFL to air games and that's a that's a huge part of the income for free ESPN. Um and I think that that blurs the lines. And listen, having been around uh, sports journalists a lot when you trade in access, right? It it's undoubtedly great for your career. Journalists like Schefter, like Woj, like Shams, th- you know, they have a, a product that people want for whatever yeah. reason, whether it's their fantasy stat or just to, to know more than their fellow fan or just whatever, to, to be able to feel like they're taking, uh they're seeing what's happening in the moment, to, to use your uh, words. But the issue is you then have to water and feed and manage those relationships that you have with the people that give you the information and that's clearly what happened here now I think 98% of the time it doesn't fucking matter like Adam Schefter Mm -hmm. you know uh, tweets some kind of deal news and all that does is you know uh, tell people like what free agent got signed and maybe some people are like oh I know what to do with my fantasy uh, team now you know, I'll, I'll make a tweak to my fantasy lineup. Like, that's the kind of, you know, and and 98% yeah, of the definitely. time, it's fine. It's value-added for people. Exactly. This is the 2%. This and, like, his coverage of the Washington football team where it was, it was discovered that he had, you know, allowed a subject of a piece to look at a piece and tell him whether he should edit it, this is where you start to get into issues that are really troubling. I mean, again, this is Schefter knowingly or unknowingly muddied the waters of an ongoing
2: uh, domestic abuse case that's horrendous and that's new because what does that what does that mean in the grand scheme of things and even again this is something that is a normal thing that happens where people people pretty much can decide a narrative that they want to push the social media is, you know, like where public opinion happens per se. Like, yeah, you know, it used to basically. be only the news. It used to be, you got your news from CNN, MSNBC, and that's where you got your information and it told you almost how to think from those newscasters and the anchors. But now social media can sway public opinion. And so when you talk about an open investigation, well, what does that mean? You know, like what? how does social media now play a role in things? It's like, it's completely, even how we watch trials, Unfold now with Cal yeah. Rittenhouse and we have the Ahmad Auberry trial. There's yeah. people like as the trials are going on, we're talking about it live on Twitter. People's opinions are being formed. And will it change the outcome of those things? No, but there's something to be said about persuading the minds of the people of the public. And now you see it happening a lot in sports journalism, and athletes have taken that power back though athletes yeah, have now sure. there used to be only one side of the story told in sports with traditional journalism, but now with podcasts and other platforms that athletes are speaking on, somebody can say something about an athlete now. And then Kevin Durant tweets. Yeah, no, that's not how it went down. And then you, we get a whole nother world of opinion. So social media has opened up in a good way, but also there's some give and take to that. That's a good point because I think uh, the social media
1: of it all has actually empowered journalists like Schefter, like Woj, like Shams, because now there's actually, you know, if you want to break into the kind of like access journalism game, now you're not just competing against Woj, Schefter, and Shams, you're competing against the players themselves who have the ability to just go straight to the consumer. Part of the issue, and you said it with the way, you know, narrative and opinion is shaped in real time on social media, to go back to this story, I remember when the pictures came out. So when when the news of yeah. this the actual court case broke uh, post Schefter's tweet and you saw the pictures of of the victim and I remember going into the Twitter comments after various people had shared you know reporters Mina Kimes and others had had shared it and all the comments were oh you mean the the person that broke into Dalvin Cook's house and pepper sprayed him and then attacked yeah. him and he was defending himself do your own research. Like that's, we, I I know the story. And that's part of the problem with this kind of journalism is it is present and is quick and it's fast, but it is also like vulnerable to all kinds of distortions. Now, theoretically, again, as a, as a person who's worked in sports journalism, there should be an editor, right? Yeah. That is powerful yeah. enough to say, hold on, I know you want to tweet this. But there's all kinds of liabilities that that could come up that could damage the company. Let's make sure that we are right about this stuff. Let's hold off. The thing is, like, if you're Adam Schefter, you make uh, X amount of millions of dollars a year. There's probably no single editor at ESPN that has the power to be like, don't they
2: want to keep their job.
1: (laughs) Yeah, right. That's that's not going to happen. So, you know, and then. Even from uh, the perspective of somebody who's not, you know, like I've had a, a nice career as a sports journalist, definitely not to making in the level of the Schefter money. At the same time, like working at places that I've worked, social media is always the place that you are vulnerable because it's the point of contact between you and the audience. And it's the lowest paid people who can potentially mess up and throw everything into turmoil. So it's just like a, it's, I would hope that, ESPN, after these last couple of incidents with Schefter, would put some kind of process into place. But I'm not confident that anybody has the juice
2: to rein in a guy like Schefter, who's as powerful as Schefter. But it's tough, though, because I just always think about, like, how will the process work? Right. If Adam Schefter gets a call at one a.m., that's the issue. This exactly one a.m. East Coast time, which means it's still plenty of time to post it on the West Coast. Like let's say hypothetically, and he gets a good nugget that by the time everybody wakes up, everyone will know what happens in those moments. Because I mean, this is not unrealistic. Athletes do stuff in the wee hours of the night. Even a domestic violence case. All that stuff started to come out five o'clock in the morning. Like this is early morning stuff happening. Do you wait until your editor can approve? Does your editor stay on call 24 hours a day? I'm just like, I just think through because, you know, like being on the other side of business, like the management side, I always think, well, how could you monitor them? Would I have to hire somebody for 24 hours a day to stay ready if Adam Schefter gets a nugget that he wants to tweet? And how can you stay on top of that?
1: And the other part of it is, if I'm Adam Schefter, I'm saying, hey. My business is being first. That is my job. Yeah. If I'm not first, I'm out on the fucking street. Yeah. So, whoever is in the way of me being first, being an editor, be it anybody, at ESPN that exactly. they try to put in, I'm going to I'm going to be constantly at this person's neck because that's Hurry a threat up and give to my me back position. My story. Yeah. Yeah. You're going to be like, a ah, yeah. Did you read it? That's a threat to my position in the industry. So, like it's very very tough. I I'm not sure how you stop it's obvious how you stop stuff from happening like this again, right? You have some kind of process in place, a person who looks over the information to make sure we're good. At the same time, that is not how Adam Schefter built his career. He built his career by being first and having that information that he got and from ESPN and has players benefited everybody.
2: from it, and they benefited yes, from it so greatly. Greatly. You have to always. We've talked a lot about when businesses benefit from something. How does that affect how they police it? And so, if you have an Adam Schefter that even People have to understand, bad press is good press for some companies. If you want to be it's in the so news, true. like Adam, so like he broke that news, right? And we saw it 30,000 likes and the apology got like a fraction of that, right? A
1: fraction. They,
2: do people, do you think ESPN cares about that? They got 30,000 likes on that first one. So you have to always remember too, companies don't necessarily want to police something if it's working. That's, that's the thing.
1: I, even if they want to. And, and I'm not going to – like, there are good people at ESPN who I'm sure feel terrible about this, and, and they don't want this to happen again, yada, yada, yada. It almost doesn't matter because the economic incentive for being first Thank is so you. strong. Thank it's you. so powerful. The money like,
2: moves all the needles. Like, people need to know oh. money moves things in sports. Like, that's period.
1: Like, I, I, I would imagine unless – and this is a big unless, unless this results like in some kind of lawsuit where, yeah. uh, where the person who is involved in this case says, hey, you you actually slandered me or something to that effect. This is just like the cost of doing business. You mess up some, sometimes you miss.
2: Who pays for that? Let's say, th- does ESPN pay for the lawsuit? I'm just, to take it a step further, he's a reporter for ESPN and she comes after she ain't coming after just Adam, is she? Is she coming after Adam and ESPN? Because that's when the company cares. Right. And then they're like, oh, wait a minute, people. Everybody run it by your editor first. Now we saw what happened to Adam. Well, you know, in
1: again, as, as a sports journalist, we've had stories. I've been involved with stories where we have to kick it up to legal multiple times. Every time there's an edit, you want to run it by legal to make sure we're good. We're good. We're good. Mm. You know, obviously we're theorizing now. But I yeah. would imagine, listen, if I'm suing, I'm suing the person with the money, not like and so Adam Schefter's got a lot of money, but ESPN got a lot more. You yes. know what I mean? <laughs> <My> <laughs> point, got exactly. A lot more.
2: So imagine ESPN starts getting sued now because this social media reporting is new. I mean, it's fairly new in a sense yes, of very new. I even talked to you guys about it in pre-pro where women's sports we don't have a Woj or an Adam Schefter per se yet, where everybody knows. That's the person that might drop mm-hmm. the news. You know, we just don't have like a solidified person. I don't know who the, the women's soccer person is. You know, like I don't, we don't know those names yet because honestly, 4% of media attention is what women's sports get. So not a lot of people were looking for stories in general, but now with this internet and journalism I, you start to see those wojas emerging on the women's side. You start to see different people breaking different stories and you start to hear names that are like, oh, they're breaking another story. And, you know, like Christina Williams is somebody that's broken a lot of stories on the, on the women's side in the WNBA. And so now you start to see it happening, but it's going to be interesting because these stories that are being broken and even with the Adam, what's going to happen now if, what he said, if that tweet is actually incorrect, what, what happens yeah. next?
1: What, what is it like to be ground level of that watching your sport go from you want more attention, you want more eyes on it because that is the tide that yeah. will lift all boats economically. Uh, but at the same time, there's stuff that I'm sure got swallowed up that nobody will ever know about because nobody was looking. And now with people yeah. looking and now there's that interest, what is has what that shift been like?
2: It's been lit, honestly, like even just to see the young players right now, the different endeavors they're doing, the sponsorship deals they're doing, the tunnel walks, the amount of attention that even just fashion is getting in the WNBA. It's big lit. Mm. Like I I love it. And I always think back and I know that's why we almost even talked about it earlier. Imagine if social media was a thing with some of the players that played before us because players that play. Right now, the athletes that everyone sees and hears, and like I'm an example of that type of athlete, we're very politically correct. We do things a certain way. We present ourselves. We're basically our own brands. But back in the day, players were a little more raw, more not, I wouldn't say, I would say they're raw and unfiltered. Like you can even see it now with a Scottie Pippen. Draymond Green is somebody yeah. that we see in our timeline now where Draymond announced that he was one of the best players of all, all time and, and it broke the internet for a second. That's <laughs> stuff that people back in the day used to say. I was like, they'll fight and be punching each other and saying those type of things. And so imagine the stories that weren't told about the Cheryl Swoops, the Cynthia Coopers, Tina, like all these names, the Don Stanleys, we see how her personality even now on the internet has exploded yeah. and she's a fun follow. Imagine her in her prom. And so always, that's my first thought. I'm like, man, imagine all the stories that we just don't know because we just didn't have that access back then. But that's where you see it now with people like Just Women Sports and even what we're doing with Think Tank Productions there's so many stories that we can choose from because a lot of stories haven't been told in women's sports. So me and Serena, we started production coming because like, Oh my God, I know so many stories that people just don't even really know because no one's telling them. And I hope they start telling them now, but will all of those stories get told? I highly doubt it. Like I, I highly doubt you'll be able to find those cool random stories that, you know, they're just gone. And that's tough when it comes to women's sports, but also in the same part, you know, you can be under the on the hot seat, too, because yeah. now that there's more access, you know, even things to, as far as what's going on with, with my team, fans were demanding answers and reporters were trying to find the scoop <laughs> and they wanted some stuff and they didn't care if we was under investigation or not. They didn't care if there was other things. They didn't care. They said, we want answers right now. This is how it works now. And I was just like, wow, you know, like that's lit. The fans are in tune, but... There's a give and take, Like I said, there's always pros and cons.
0: I did it! What a perfect ending to a historic day.
1: You know what that sound means? It's time for Buzz Bearders where we talk about stories that we didn't cover in the show because of time. And this time, you know what? <laughs> I am going to clear out. Give uh, Renee an ISO because uh, (laughs) there's big news from this weekend.
2: Okay. I know you hear it. That's wedding bells in case you don't hear it. Your girl is a whole wife out here, all right? Like, yeah. Shouts to my baby, Serena Gray. She's a singer here in Atlanta. She does PR for me. She literally has built this whole thing around me when I opted out. And people don't really know how it happens. And they thought that I did it on my own. No, I have a whole wife that was behind the scenes (laughs) on the ones and twos, making sure this was the right interview for me. This isn't, this is a good lot. Yeah. Just doing all of that. But besides that point, We had a Zoom wedding in 2020 where everybody was having Zoom weddings. Uh, We just didn't announce it because we actually planned on having some type of real IRL reception Mm -hmm. ceremony, something. We thought we'd be out of a pandemic by now, people. So here we are a whole year later and still in a pandemic. So we thought we need to just announce it, let everybody know. And we actually announced on people that we got married for 2020, and very easy time for me to remember. Basically, so I, this is another just little quick tip to people: make your anniversaries dates you can remember because you're gonna I have to it. remember them. Just, just a quick tip. So, her family was on one uh, Zoom iPad, <laughs> and my family was on another. This is before we even knew how to work Zoom, so we didn't even record it because we didn't know all those things. I'm sick about that part. But long story short. We were in love and it felt like a real wedding. I cried, all of that oh. real stuff. Yeah, and oh. we, annou- yeah, we announced it on People though about last week. This happened last week where we announced on people that we're actually married already and we won't be having the reception type of thing we wanted. We just wanted to let everybody know. And People was so kind to put us on their platform and announce our Zoom wedding. And so it's exciting times but I have a rant to go on. Shouts to my baby, yes, I love lovely baby. She listens to the show every time, and she's amazing. Hi, baby. So, <laughs> why don't people tell me how lit? Like, we don't get married. Life doesn't get enough love. Like, we hear all the time about how you can be single, popping bottles, hot girl summer. <laughs> even listen to how Cardi and Megan the Stallion. Everybody's in love. Y'all better keep keep listening to Meg the Stallion. All that hot girl music, and she happy <laughs> in love. One year anniversary just posted up. Cardi B's <laughs> married, and I don't want to hear nothing about it. She's in love. These people, they need to start rapping about being in love and in married because it's lit. Imagine having somebody that it's a Saturday. You don't have nothing to do. You don't know what the streets is going to be like. But you do know <laughs> that your favorite show, Succession, just released a new episode or the whole season's out, and you want to binge watch it? And you got somebody that wants to talk storylines, talk characters, talk the plot, break it down that's that's dope to me. I don't know. You know what I'm saying? Netflix and chill is lit. But I, call, I think of myself as like a movie critic. And so I'm really into that. When I'm not it. working, I want to just sit at the house and do nothing and watch TV with somebody I can have a good conversation with it about. That's Serena. Married Life is lit. That's all I wanted to say. Sorry, Jason. What's on your buzzer beaters or what's going on in your world?
1: I just wanted to throw it to you, but I just want to take one moment to address... <laughs> Those people out here in the audience that might be, maybe you're looking for that person. You <laughs> listen to Renee just now. You listen to Renee just now go on for two, three minutes about how great married life is, the, the, a long relationship, how beautiful that is when you find that bond with somebody, you find your person. <laughs> and you're sitting there in your car or wherever you're at, the gym, wherever you're at, thinking, oh no, I need that. I need that in my life <laughs> and I don't have it right now. What am I going to, you're going to find it. Telling you right. That is my buzzer beater. You're going to find it. Just hang tight. You're going to find it. I like that,
2: Jason. You're going to find it. Don't worry about it. Find love in a hopeless place. It's a pandemic, but you can find (laughs) love. Okay? That's
1: it for us. Follow, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to subscribe to Take Line Show on YouTube yep. for exclusive video clips from this episode, plus my digital series, All Caps NBA, which comes out every Friday. Check it out. Goodbye. Take Line is a crooked media production is produced by Carlton Gillespie and Zuri Irvin. Our executive producers are myself and Sandy Gerard. Our contributing producers are Caroline Reston, Elijah Cohn, and Jason Gallagher. Engineering, editing, and sound design by Sarah Gibbel-Laska and the folks at Chapter 4. And our theme music is produced by Brian Vasquez.
2: Dive into the start of summer at Whole Foods Market. Check out their summer splash event with sales on fresh organic produce, organic strawberries, and a fan-favorite sale on Ben & Jerry's and Talenti. Explore deals on grill-friendly meats like organic air-chilled chicken breast, beef and chicken kebabs, all with no antibiotics ever from our meat department. Plus, grab easy sides from prepared foods and cool off with refreshing drinks. Kick off your summer and shop in store or online at Whole Foods Market today.
3: Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader. Like that car riding your tail.